Have you subscribed to the OTB Football Podcast? I just can't that picture in Stephen Gerrard walking <laughs> out of the Etihad, you know, wearing that Liverpool jersey underneath the suit, a bit like Superman Clark Kent. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. And you're welcome to the Sunday Paper Review on Off The Ball. John Duggan here. It's for Joe Malloy. We hope you're doing okay around the country uh, this Sunday morning and lunchtime. I'm delighted to be joined by the editor of the journal.ie, Sinead O'Carroll, and the broadcaster and journalist, Johnny Ward, to review the stories of the day. Sinead, Johnny, how are you getting on? How are you? Good. Your Munster game, Sinead, yesterday. Yeah, um, I'm probably one of... Definitely rugby wise, the best atmosphere I've ever been. That is a big a statement. And I was at, I saw some people comparing it to New Zealand in November, and I was at that game, and the atmosphere there was good. And again, for rugby, it was very good, but this one was more akin to like a a big All Ireland football final is how I felt like it was. And it was probably the only time I've understood when people say, you know, the there was a 16th man. Is it They say that all the time about Thoman. And I have gone to games down in Thoman, but this um, and the, the quarterfinal was big or the, the last 16 was big. But this was, yeah, it was something kind of special and did have that feeling that it could have been special and that there was this 16th man we playing. We spoke about and this pre-show, like, JD. It's like um, it took the Munster fans to come to Lansdowne to make an atmosphere. <laughs> like, what does that say? Well, the, I, like the, the atmosphere itself, Six Nations, like anyone will say, uh, Jerry Thorny wrote about it wasn't great. Yeah, no, it wasn't good this now, year. Now, the Republic of Ireland has improved. The Portugal game was good. Um, I think the Germany game was the one I remember the most, the Shane Long game. Um, so I think with the Republic of Ireland, I don't see an issue, but I haven't been to a Six Nations game yeah, recently. Well, actually, I live very close to the Aviva and you can hear when, when there's football on, you can hear it from my house. Right. When there's rugby on, you can't. That's, very <laughs> that's, so that's yeah. probably telling as well. Absolutely, um, yeah. But yeah, no, the, it was the... the I think Munster just tried to play it out and there was just 10 minutes too too much for them to, to play it like that. But it did feel there was a moment where someone from Toulouse t- fumbled the ball and I looked up and I thought, God, that is the 16th man man working here. Like it was really difficult for them to play in, um, even with all the advantages they have. But um, yeah, just just those few minutes. Too long, what I was think. the atmosphere like during the penalties? That must have been a strange. It's, yeah. And, and actually, it's, it's in the papers today. It kind of com- it was just became completely odd. You could see even the players were being very nice to each other, like Joey Carberry had you know they were kind of uh, hitting each other on the shoulders like from op- opposition teams it was quite flat then because people a lot of people actually around us didn't know how it was going to work they didn't know if there was going to be just three uh, kicks if there was going to be five novelty, if like, there was going to be six yeah, yeah. so you know it's the second time it's happened in what like three decades so yes. p- people weren't sure wh- how it was going to work so that kind of there was a lot of people like looking up phones talking to each other and then you know there's always someone with authority who says this is how it's going to happen but they weren't right and um, and then obviously with the, the missed kicks so so early on and then Toulouse didn't even really know how to celebrate at sure. the end they eventually kind of lined up and found some fans and, and, and jumped up and down but you know it was I think everyone felt and in the papers across today there's there's the analysis that no one wants to blame anyone because it's such a weird way of finishing a game they had to do it that way I guess the tries were equal so they had to they have to find some way of doing it Um but it definitely, yeah, didn't have the atmosphere, say, of a penalty shootout for sure. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's go through the back pages on your Sunday. So the Sunday Times Sports Supplement, uh, we have um, Hanging by a Thread. Uh, Diaz grabs a point, but Liverpool's quadruple hopes are in doubt. Uh, so the one-all draw against Tottenham yesterday. And uh, Munster missed out to, to lose and shoot out, as Sinead was talking about there. And Rangnick, sorry, after humiliating hammering. So this was absolutely 
shocking for Manchester United a 4-0 defeat at Brighton and the players are already on their summer holidays in their heads like just awful stuff if you're a Man United fan and Kingdom Rule uh, Kerry beat Cork in Munster semi-final 23 points to 11 the back of the Sunday Independent the sports section there we have last men standing um, heartbreak for Munster but Leinster book semi-final place uh, Paul Kimmage Becker's trials and tribulations we'll get to that and Liverpool stumble Spurs but dent in title hopes we have the Irish Daily Mail on Sunday pure agony Munster's dreams dashed by uh following champions uh, from the penalty shootout. Clinical carry, uh, Rebels fade after early resistance as Kingdom's class kicks in. And huge blow for Liverpool as Nervy draw it home to Tottenham, Spurs on City. And Katie will struggle to top her New York magic. So Manchester City against Newcastle today, live and off the ball in News Talk. The Sunday World. What in Christ. All full United are now a laughing stock for Ron so Cristiano Ronaldo caught laughing we don't know what he's laughing at but uh, it was a shocker Cristiano Ronaldo could only look on and laugh as his own Man United teammates after their disastrous season hit rock bottom last night as they were thrashed 4-0 by Brighton in the Premier League and also foregone conclusion about Liverpool and hard task for Guardiola to help players be easier now after the Liverpool draw against Spurs last night Sunday Mirror we have King Luis strange headline really Diaz rescues a point, but City take title advantage. Uh, Ronaldo's big talks with Fergie, so apparently they've been having cups of tea, uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and Alex Ferguson. And But it's a penalty pain for Munster and Tiger feet. Leinster into the last four again. They'll play to lose at the Aviva Stadium next weekend. We'll find out the day and the time tomorrow. We have the Sunday people. Ronaldo and secret talks with Fergie. Uh, Mersey slide, City in pole position after Sunstrike puts the break on Liverpool title charge. Uh, Chelsea welcomed the hand of Todd Todd Bailey, the new owner, who was uh, kind of in the cameras quite a lot yesterday. And Stan Collymore, sorry Pep, but you're a Euro failure in my book. So that's the, the definitive verdict from Stan Collymore on Pep Guardiola. Back of the sun on your Sunday, uh, sunburn. I like that one. Red Hot Spurs star, Rocks Cup. Can't beat a bit of sun. Uh, Jack Eyes rebound, Jack Grealish. Not the flavour of the month. Cause it gets a hard deal, I think, in the, in the press. If you'd scored, it'd be a different matter, wouldn't it, the other night? A bench power nails are for Kerry. Kerry 23 points, Cork 11. And we're not fit to wear the shirt, says Bruno Fernandes, not the supporters. Bruno Fernandes said this. So Bruno Fernandes admits Man United's flops were not fit, fit to wear the shirt in the loss against Brighton. The 4 0 humiliation. And Jonathan Wilson will get to as well. I thought this was good. Outbreaks of chaos expose fatal flaw that keeps denying Guardiola. European glory. So that's what's on the back pages of your Sunday really papers. Jonathan Wilson, Isn't he? Yeah, I think um, that's probably the best place to start, Johnny Pep. And uh, yeah. it is fascinating, the whole Pep you, concept. Well, you, you touched on Grealish there, JD. Like, I saw criticism. Like, I saw people mocking Jack Grealish on Twitter this week um, because when, when Jack Grealish came on, the game was under control. And Jack Grealish goes on and has, like, a really, really good game. He plays really well in, if you're talking about XGs, like, the, the one that's cleared off the line goes in any day of the week. And what is the mocking of Jack Grealish? Like, and it's touched on in the papers today. Tommy Conlon's uh, article is interesting about like the Spanish reaction to it. I can't fathom how that game went from Man City. Um, and it's just one of these things. He may go down as a Euro failure or whatever. But like Man City were so good. They had they, like no shot on target until they scored Real. Um, two goals in like two minutes. It was insane. And... 
I can't put my head around it. Like it's like I, I, I The problem is if it was just the one off, it's the pattern. Mm. That's the problem. It's the pattern going back to twenty eleven when you last won a Champions League when he uh, Messi and Xavi and Iniesta and it's the pattern, the flurry of goals they keep conceding in games, Monaco, Leon, Spurs. And then it becomes this big debate. It's the, a thing. Yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. Uh, the Grealish thing, like whether it's he's just seen as Jack the Lad, um, bit of a party boy. 100 million quid. Uh, I'm sure he works as hard as everybody else, but he's just seen to be labelled. Like the way like Raheem Sterling was labelled uh, for a long time in the British media. He just seems to have got that label. And you're absolutely right. He scores, he's the hero. And now it's, well, what about Grealish? It's a strange one. He did unbelievably well. Like it was just pure, pure misfortune. You know? But it, isn't it as well that he seems like a kind of innocuous player for City to, for Pep to have to have bought like a free spirit. Yeah, and like a, a shiny new thing. Yeah. like rather than like you know someone who will absolutely fit into system. Pe- Pep system, Pep structure, how Pep wants his players to be and act. And so I think. I found it interesting that he, that Pep himself like name checked him, saying, you know, what if Jack Grealish scores those two goals? You know, he would be seen obviously as uh, Pep himself would be seen as different, and Jack himself would be seen as different. But interesting that Pep kind of saying, well, you didn't score those two goals for me, Jack, did you? You know, you could read that kind of name check in a different way if you're Jack Grealish and really thinking about those two chances. Maybe you're thinking, oh, he's he's putting a bit of blame on me there as well. He might not be. He might be saying, look, I could have gone in. You know, ha- taken off a couple of players, put put Jack Grealish in, and we ended up winning three 0 So happy days, um, you know, inches. Um, but it's the chaos. He doesn't like chaos, and when it happens on the pitch with his team, they don't like chaos. So when the first goal went in, I think everyone watching kind of thought, "Well, the second goal's going to go, yeah. in, isn't it?" <laughs> like Real had done nothing like in the ninety minutes. It was just totally insane, and you could just see the whole thing crumbling in front of their eyes. Like um, the Grealish thing, though, I don't get JD. Like he's. He's a scapegoat for something that was out of his control, really. So the best riding, probably David Walsh, Tommy Conlon and Jonathan Wilson on Guardiola and the whole City thing. Yeah, David Walsh is very much sticking up for the team and for Pep saying like there's absolutely no failure here. So agreeing with uh, Pep Guardiola, who said, you know, he's the pre- probably the one of the moments he's the most proud to be in this club. So I'm guessing he's kind of seeing how his players react. But then he said he also didn't speak to his players. So I'm it's kind of an interesting uh, dilemma there. How is he that proud if he hasn't spoken to them about it? And so it's not about their reaction. Um, and he said he's not speaking about it if it's a failure or not. Um, he doesn't think that there'll be a failure if they don't win the Champions League, that they've obviously won so much and they've played in the way that they have played. And David Walsh kind of goes through his piece um, in the back page in Sunday Times saying it's hard to disagree with him. For if it's failure you want, you've got to look elsewhere. It's interesting how we look at failure, isn't it? Because... Everybody seems to be enthralled with Guardiola's failure. Now, maybe there's the brilliance of Barcelona, but Zidane, nobody speaks about Zidane in the same breath as they speak about Guardiola. Yeah. But Zidane won three Champions Leagues in a row. It's expectation, isn't it? And that's how the greats become the absolute greats. Like Tiger Woods expected to win and he wins. So you can look at it as boring in some ways then. Like the reason that we're still enthralled by Pep is that sometimes he does fail. Sometimes he doesn't, doesn't win and it, it never becomes boring then. You know, you get games like last, you know, I think it's the fact it's Man City as well, the way that they're yeah. like they're funded and people want him to fail. Right. Um, and I think people revel in the fact that he hasn't achieved and like even if they win the league this season, which they probably will now, I think that's not good enough. Um, and I think that's the way people look at it. We're, we're rubbernecking the failure. But that's yeah. the, the soap opera as well, isn't it? Everyone just presumes that Pep cares more about the Champions League than the Premier League. So uh, which I think is true at this stage. Yeah. Like, <laughs> he is, like, he's, he's more or less acknowledged that himself. Like, But I mean... 
you, you, it almost defies rational um, explanation of what happened in that game. It's like Man City are an unbelievably good football team, JD, possibly the best football team we've ever seen. And if you have all these bizarre sequences of events, like what has happened in the Champions League for them, like there were mad odds on favourites in so many games that they didn't win. And it's like, I can't, I can't rationally explain that. Well, it's interesting, Tommy Collins, you can pay 100 million all you like for Jack Grealish, but despite those enormous calf muscles, he's still only Jack Grealish. He's not Bill Murray. He's not a ghostbuster. There's almost a mystery element to what uh, Tommy's kind of talking about. There's, there's something there in the spirituality almost to Real Madrid and the way they won the game. Yeah, he speaks about the, um, the headlines. This is not football, declared one Spanish radio commentator. It's a paranormal phenomenon. <laughs> there is no way to explain it football-wise. Front page headline on Marsa demanded an opinion from an authority even higher than John Giles. Come down, God, and explain it, they slashed. <laughs> the same paper in its coverage declared that City had seen a haunting. Shadows, ghosts, witches. Another front page led with the headline De Otro Mundo from Another World. And that's kind of what it was. Like, I mean, if, if you look at that game, what did Man City do wrong? Nothing really, but they lost. Yeah, but he's talking about like the, the history of Real Madrid actually is something to stand. You know, it it actually helps on games like that. If you said that before the game, you'd be like you're really clutching for straws to you know give Real Madrid but a you chance. You could feel here, it. You could feel it with the bus tour and with the you can the noise through the TV. You could feel well. This is this yeah, is the fortress that atmosphere here. thing again. Yeah. They yeah. spoke about Rodrigo as well. The fact that he was a 21 year old born in this century it didn't matter that he was born in the 21st century. It didn't matter that he needed history lessons to learn about Real's 13 previous European Cups. Once he put on the jersey, he inherited the mantle. He inherited the empowerment and the entitlement also. And I don't think this is a great Real side, but um, they do seem to have that. Uh, Jonathan Wilson, um, the very sophistication and subtlety of the Guardiola model can, in certain circumstances, count against it. That is, team that seeks always to impose order cannot deal with rare outbreaks of chaos. His squads tend to comprise what Zlatan Ibrahimovic mocked at Barca as obedient little schoolboys. And uh, the biggest underthinking of all from Guardiola perhaps would be simply to sign a striker after all if City had converted more than one of their nine shots on target in the first 90 minutes of the Bernabeu, the game would have been out of reach even for this Madrid. So the Jonathan Wilson and the Observer today. That's an interesting point because like Guardiola is kind of redefining how football is played without that recognised number nine. Um, but they should have won this game and they didn't because they didn't convert the chances that they had. Um, despite the fact that they scored five goals in aggregate, they should have scored a lot more. I think it's also reflective of the dominance of Pep. Pep is such a dominant figure. He's the dominant figure at Manchester City, whereas Ancelotti is the inverse of that, where he is the avuncular um, friend and it's the players that are the... Yeah, he doesn't really fit this like narrative that the media love and we all love because we all sit and talk about Klopp and Pep all day long. And we kind of the, the players are just their little puppets to like do what they want with, and we don't really give them the the personality and the, and the narratives that uh, the managers get. But yeah, he, he define defies that because we don't really know him, talk about him, care too much about him. Like even though his feats have been spectacular as well. Katie Taylor speaking about um. The spectacular feeds. <laughs> uh, the best article I wrote, read today was Eamon Sweeney's in the back of the Sunday Independent. I thought it's a fantastic piece about her win against uh, Amanda Serrano in New York last week. It's a brilliant piece. Yeah, you can go actually. Um, I was just it. It compares her with Conor McGregor, but not in. If you just hear that, you might think it's kind of a cheap. Here we piece. go. Yeah, here we go. Like, yeah, well, it, but it really doesn't. It it gives Conor McGregor credit for the the things that he has done. It gives him. Um, and obviously, you know, is honest about some of the things he has done as well. But it it's it's showing their different ways of being Irish 
to an international and American audience. Uh, so McGregor's is one of, of version of Irishness. He said, yeah, Katie Taylor's modesty, her almost puritanical seriousness of purpose, her absolute unpretentiousness, her determination not to give away too much and belief that deeds speak louder than words may actually be a better reflection of what we're really like. Um, which is kind of a conceited way of looking at all of us of, of, as Irish people. But like if you're kind of, I'd take it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, it is, I think he ends with being like, she's one of a kind and she's ours and we're lucky she is. And I think everybody is incredibly in awe of what Katie Taylor has done. Yeah. Like for her sport, for herself, for her sport, for women's sport. Um and for the business of sport as well. Like she's so many things. It's it's kind of like, I, I think the, the one issue I have with this piece is that both she and McGregor are total outliers. Like Katie Taylor is like somebody who, despite, uh, you know, being of a generation that basically has abandoned the church, is a strong believer in God. She like quotes God all the time. Um, and I just like how he says, last week a tabloid newspaper described Taylor's unwillingness to talk about her private life as controversial, as if that should be controversial. Like, what has her private life got to do with anything? Um, but most people regard her reticence on these matters as refreshingly normal. It wouldn't have seemed odd in any other era. At a time when fame is seen as the most precious prize life has to offer, Taylor appears to have little interest in it. For her, fame seems nothing more than the inevitable, perhaps even regrettable consequence of the pursuit of sporting greatness. She does not seek fame and she does not seek sympathy. The falling out with her father must have been incredibly painful at the time, yet she kept her counsel. People pieced together the stories from the, the story from the evidence of others. Taylor did not want to enlist public support in a personal struggle. That's also an unusual attitude these days. And uh, she's just totally united in the nation. And that's why the comparison to McGregor is really interesting because yeah. McGregor had to become famous to make MMA the viable business yeah. it is for him to make the money that he has made. He had to, he was the vehicle for, for MMA to, to be as popular as it has been over the last 10 years. Um, Katie Taylor needed to do that initially to get boxing into the Olympics and then she needed but she didn't do it through the fame route she did it through I'm just going to be really really goddamn good at boxing and even though the the pool's going to have to catch up with me if I'm this good they will catch up and so she not only did that with amateur boxing to get into the Olympics she's done it now with professional boxing which is just an achievement that will be hard even to analyse in the moment now. Like it you is know, hard. It is, it's really difficult and it, it'll Long, you'll have to see yeah. if it lasts too. But if it is yeah. in, if it is enduring, um then it's going to be something that makes Katie Taylor an international figure for history books for a long, long time. Massively like I, I the Foley article is totally yeah. different than JD. It's like um, essentially worth the hurts question mark and a striking photo of Katie uh, Taylor left soaked up greater punishment from Serrano who landed 173 punches to Taylor's 147 now I'm not really a boxing fan but like it's kind of hard to get your head around that and he does talk about like how close the referee was to um, actually stopping it Um, I saw she was hurt to the body she was valiantly trying to fight her way out of that corner but getting into deeper and deeper trouble there was a lot of concern there she was having a lot of trouble breathing my job that night was stay out of the way and let the fight come to its natural conclusion it definitely could have been argued I could have stepped in there at one point, but I was trying to let the action find its own way through. She did survive that round just barely. Um, and you do kind of, it's like two totally different articles. You read that and you're like, she hit a, she took a heavy blow. Like she took a lot of heavy blows and she doesn't, I mean, let's talk about her and saying she doesn't want to retire. He, she gave him this stare when he mentioned it like four years ago. And now she's at 30 point, 35. At some point, Taylor, 35, will need to make the peace within herself, step away from the sport, 
that has defined her entire life. Um, if a knight of knights of Crow Park is Taylor's wish, the least anyone can do in return for her reinvention of an entire sport is move heaven and earth to make it happen. After that, the time will be close for anyone to let this extraordinary adventure go, and you just hope that she goes out in one piece. It's Michael Griffin, uh, the referee, speaking on Sirius uh, Radio uh, in that article. Um, I think there's a couple of things I took from it. The inner fortress uh, part, which... Uh, uh, the great French essayist, this is Eamon Sweeney Raji in Montaigne's, uh, wrote that one of the most valuable things we can possess is an inner fortress which cannot be affected by outside events. And he goes on to say, the American writer Chuck Klosterman once interviewed Bono and put the U2 singer's boundless self-assurance down to the fact that Bono knows who he is. Katie Taylor's diffidence might make her seem like the opposite of Bono, yet she possesses the same steely sense of self-belief. She knows who she is too. I was lucky enough to be there in Rio. It wasn't a, no- a nice day uh, for Katie Taylor and her, her entourage, her mother, in uh, in 2016 um, because it was the devastation of losing that uh, Olympic bout. She was the champion. She was defeated. Um, it was in a uh, kind of a, a nondescript industrial estate in Rio de Janeiro. Her dad wasn't there. Um they had parted ways in terms of being a, him being in the corner. And for her, I, I w- always thought a professional boxing for her would be an afterthought, just make a few quid. But she's now turned it into this thing as Kevin Moore, um, who's writing about the business of sport, writes in the Sunday Independent. She's won 21 fights in a row now. And six million people watched this last week. Six million people. That's watched, incredible. Watched this Katie Taylor badge. And it's now, as you say, Sinead, she's now brought professional boxing achievements that she has uh, made into, I think, a, a comparable nature with the amateur career that she had. So the inner fortress thing there um, was was definitely something that I felt that uh, she has got that resilience. And for anybody who's listening or anybody who's watching who might be struggling a bit today, I just I always think back at Katie Taylor. She was at her lowest ebb and she said, you know what, I'm going to find a different way, a different path. I'm going to fight back and the, t- t- tomorrow will be brighter. And she's proven that. And I think it's a, an example to anybody there. You're going to have knocks in life and Katie Taylor's had a few and just as as quiet as she is there's a story from Rio actually that kind of shows you her power I was well while you were watching her I was with Annalise Murphy right. waiting for her uh, races and there was wind delays and all of that was happening and uh, Katie lost and her mother said God I hope Annalise doesn't find that out because she uh, thought yeah. like if she heard if she hears Katie lost like maybe there's maybe there'll be something that'll click in her brain thinking like if, if Katie isn't doing it maybe there you know I'll lose it now she wouldn't have but it, I, I, she could have lost so the power of that from one athlete's mother going like, oh, I hope she doesn't know that Katie lost um, so I think that the idea of her just being an enduring Irish athlete. I think there's two schools of thought now. Loads of people want the Crow Park fight. They want 90,000 people in Crow Park. They want that Irish homecoming for her. But I think a lot of people want her to go out on top and never be beaten. So like, yeah. you know, there, she, she could get beaten in Crow Park. That's, a, you know, because the pool has improved around her. There are fighters but out Serrano there. Serrano was can, good. Yeah, Serrano was really, really good. And, you know, people score the fight differently. You know, it, it, it could have gone either way. Um, people want her to go out on top, but she wants to just keep boxing. And I think, you know, if if some of the feats do include a loss along the way, obviously she wouldn't be happy about it, but I don't think she'd be happy if she felt like she was running away just because she wanted to stay undefeated. She wants to keep boxing com- while she can keep boxing. And you can see comparisons with her and Honeysuckle JD. Like they're two female athletes of extreme talent. Like um, Honeysuckle wants to go out undefeated and... Katie just is Katie. She's um, she's like a throwback to another era, um, and what she's done for boxing is absolutely incredible. Like and like even the story of Serrano, like who had never been to Madison Square Garden before, despite the fact that she's living in Brooklyn, um, and she earns like a million from the fight or whatever. It was an amazing thing.
Yeah, Eddie Hearn, once again, to be fair to him, as these guys are good, and he and he's got now. He's on a runner now with Katie Taylor, but he did back her at the start. Yeah, and I and you know she did it too. Like she sent the Twitter DM. You know, yeah, yeah, like yeah. that's the like she knew how she was going to go about it. Like behind that, like very quiet, shy uh, persona is someone who knows what know, knows what she's doing on both fronts on on the sporting front, but also on the on the business front. And I think if Crow Park can happen, Eddie Hearn will be the one that makes it happen. Right. Um, and I think. It will it will be packed. I think you know getting a ticket to that won't be an easy feat if she gets there. Pe- people will want to be there for for when Katie Taylor fights at home. They want been to something. say that they were there exactly. 10, yeah. 20 years. Yeah, like it'll past. it'll feel that momentous. Um, and you know it would be it would be very disappointing. But I think that's that's why it will feel that momentous. There'll be so much on the line. People will feel you know she she will she'll be thirty five, thirty six maybe at that stage. You know can she win a big fight again in front of this crowd the pressure of being home so I think it will feel like there's a lot of jeopardy on it which will just make it all the more exciting She said I don't think I was as hurt as people may think um, I wasn't worried I obviously knew there was a tough tough round for me and I knew that was Amanda's round but I wasn't concerned or anything I was okay I was stable coming back to the corner I just had to regroup reset and I actually won the round after that regardless of whether it was a tough round for me or not I always come back and show the heart I need to actually come through. You do wonder, will she realise when her time has come, when she's like, okay, I am, I need to retire here. And that's the tough thing for a sports person to say, like, okay, I know this is the time because it's not in her nature to do that. Mm. It is, yeah, against the nature, isn't it? Uh, this is the Sunday paper review and off the ball with the editor of the journal.ie, Sinead O'Carroll, and the broadcaster and journalist, Johnny Ward. We're speaking about role models there and Katie Taylor and Paul Kimmage is writing, Johnny, about Boris Becker. Um, I want to be a hero, though I know heroes have short lives. Boris Becker gone to jail in the last couple of weeks for um, financial irregularities. This is an amazing piece, actually. He's like... Um he talks about meeting Boris and there's a great star, Tom Callahan, one of America's greatest sports writers, tells a story in his book, Gods at Play, about a working vacation to London in the summer of 1985. He was covering Wimbledon for time and breakfasted every morning at a small cafe in Kensington with his wife Angie and their children Becky and Tom. On the first morning they noticed a teenage boy waiting for a table and invited him to join them. Boris's English was still a work in progress, he says, but he and my son were about the same age and communicated easily. Becker joined us for breakfast every day that week, having no inkling he would win the tournament. I didn't ask him one question about the tennis. What a reporter. Second week, scampering through the draw, the playful puppy with the huge paws was upgraded to a contenderous hotel, and my opportunity to ask him questions was gone. Then it talks about his um, affair with this woman that he just saw um, randomly, and you know the, the consequence of having a child with her and now his demise, and it's, it is quite remarkable that he wanted to be like a German hero. Um, he wanted to be, I want to be a hero, though I know heroes have short lives, and there's a photo of him arriving at the Crown Court for his sensing, alongside his girlfriend Lillian de Carvalho Montero, and um, he's now talking about, at the end, the 22-year-old daughter. She's now 22. I will support him, and I will visit him whenever I can. I hope that will help him a little to get through this time, and it's Kind of a sad demise, JD, for what yeah. it was. Yeah, I think people were surprised because I think people often think 
people like Boris Becker, pe- people withstanding and power for whatever reason through business, sport. Will not go to jail. They just don't go to jail. And usually they don't. Lester Piggott did yeah. um, in the 80s. But um, um, it is rare, actually. It, it is it is rare. Well, and line the Simpsons, this is America, we don't send our celebrities to jail. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so Kimmage finishes with two opposing views. One from a letter to the Irish Times this week was saying like, you know, prison doesn't seem to be the right solution for Boris Becker, which you could argue prison probably isn't the right solution for it. Most people who have... Apparently who have he's already complaining about the corned beef that has been served. <laughs> yeah. He's been complaining about the conditions in Wandsworth because it's only a few miles from Centre Court. And this letter writer says surely he could do more by teaching and inspiring kids in low-income communities or, you know, do do other things that his genius and talent allow for. Um, but then Andrew Murray says, look, he broke the law and if you do that, I don't think you should get special treatment because of you, who you are or what you've achieved. I feel sorry for him that he's in that situation, but I also feel sorry for the people that he's affected so his creditors people who have lost money with his decisions and what's happened to him so Andy Murray is usually kind of very sensible and uh, yeah. on the right side of these things but nobody thinks of the creditors in these situations <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it, I think that's why probably people were, were shocked remembering his you know exploits as a tennis player but also thinking oh God it, it usually doesn't culminate in this usually there's a but he didn't have to but this is how the the end game changed so I think that's why it was um, probably of interest and probably of interest to Paul Kimmage as well obviously he likes kind of looking at these uh, kind of darker characters and trying to figure out what makes them tick (laughs) he goes how do you build a relationship when you've hardly shared a world but suddenly share a child how do you love a daughter you've denied for a year and don't see for nearly two when does she become your daughter and you're like Mm. yeah it's, it's mad and for all the fame he had, JD, like he wakes up this morning as a complex and troubled man. Yeah, in a prison. In prison. Uh, like I, I think the the one thing I think I talk about it this was like he he talk about his agent uh, Jan Tyriak, uh, his manager, and this is a seventeen year old. Uh, what other young men may ask their parents? Ask him. He taught me how to dress, how to handle women. This is a seventeen-year-old teenager at the time, mm. and like Germany didn't have many heroes in the nineteen eighties. The football team, but there was still quite a, an embryonic state, West Germany. You know, there were a state effectively which was Americanized. Didn't have any heroes. Had a lot of shame. You talk about the football team. Maybe talk about craft work, but they didn't really have an identity. And and Becker was this huge thing, and I don't think he ever really um, lived in reality. Like, I, 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 first of all, you're catapulted and he even spoke uh, to, in the Tom Callahan about the, the hero worship that he got in Germany. And then he spoke and obviously then he's catapulted into worldwide fame at 17 years of age. And he's never really been out of that bubble, as it were. And I, in the, there's a degree of, Asher, I'll just get away with this. And it's caught, it's caught up with him. Yeah. Whereas I think it's Steffi Graf and she was born around the same time. She was able to manage her life without succumbing to uh, the negative impulses of fame. Yeah, and but even that that's like the second thing that he mentions is how to handle women. Like, you know, that that, that was the atmosphere that he was being brought up in. That like, you know, uh, women are going to come along as part of this fame as like they'll be a commodity as part of this fame and you have to handle them. So, you know, that this is what he was learning at 17. And no wonder <laughs> that these are the paths that he found himself going down. Um but I think that's part of the the hero thing. Like it's it's complex to have heroes who aren't in your your same sphere. Like Katie McCabe is talking in uh, to Paul Rowan in the Sunday Times today as well, and she's talking about Roy Keane and remembering Roy Keane not celebrating the two all draw with Holland. Yeah, because they they blew a two goal lead. Yeah, yeah. and um, 
against uh, Sweden. Most of the Irish team celebrated after drawing with Sweden. It's a huge, huge thing to get a point off Sweden in the qualifiers. And she didn't. She was one of the only ones who didn't. She was like, well, we let them in in the last few minutes. Like they, We could have got, got, come away with a win. And she said she remembered Roy Keane not celebrating after that uh, to all She doesn't draw. seem to carry the rage, though, that Roy really does <laughs> have, uh, Probably not the full rage, but there's... There's a fire there, I think, with Katie McKay. But I think that's part of the hero thing. You can have a hero who's in your same field and maybe just look at what they do on the pitch, look at what they do on the tennis court. But like outside of that, I don't think sports people are... Katie, Katie Taylor maybe aside are the people to be looking to No to I think you know your, your real heroes are your family and your friends <laughs> to be honest that would be my view after meeting a lot of these people and yeah they, they, when he, we, this is when he meets um, Kimmage meets uh, Becker he's like we start with the player his recently published book and the fact that it was devoid of photographs I don't know how many millions of photographs have been taken to me over the years and this was before the day of the smartphone and I didn't want any in the book, he explained. An autobiography is not about pictures, it is about the story behind the pictures, it's about honesty, and as much truth as you can tell without coming too close to other people's privacy. Then we put his honesty and truth to the test. Six years before, on June 25th, 1999, he had left Wimbledon on his last day as a player and spent the afternoon bickering with Barbara, his heavily pregnant wife. She was expecting their second boy and reported that evening to the hospital with labour pains as Boris drowned his sorrows at a fashionable restaurant in London. It was getting late, the kitchen had closed, he ordered a lemon sorbet in vodka drink that caught the eye of a Russian model who was uh, sitting nearby, Angela Ermakova. Um, a moment later they were chatting as friends, a moment after that they were flailing at each other's clothes like two crazed animals in a quiet corner of the restaurant. Salacious stuff. That's uh, salacious stuff and that's family. Yep. And that's Paul Kimmage writing too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, great writing uh, in the Sunday Independent today. Um, let's just go to something else in that paper, uh, Sinead. Um, Katie Liston, Dr. Katie Liston, has written about um, the possible integration of the Gaelic Athletic Association, the Ladies Gaelic Football and the Camogie Associations. Time to put your cards on the table. The first step to a truly united and equal GA family is to decide what everybody means by integration. Yep, uh, integration, merger, amalgamation. So she goes through all the different words that are used when we when we talk about this uh, debate. So we do know now that everyone wants it to happen. So we kind of it's taken a long time to do get they? to the point. Well, the the is it, the is votes it, are there. The is, is it the case that as well, meaning as the GA might be, there's a lot of pressure at the moment with like uh, that women's sport should should be obviously should be equal, but there's a pressure on it as well to be. There's a pressure and there's, I think, an expectation that no other way makes sense. So I think that maybe a few years ago, the pressure would have been there because it would it felt like the right thing to do. Yeah. And now it feels like the smart and only thing to do. Okay. Like it makes no sense that like, we all have to live outside the structures of the the facilities that yes. we have. And I think a few years ago, we'd be talking about that's the right thing to do. Now it, it, it just has to be done. And I think we're probably in a stronger, we being like women in the, the two LGFA and uh, the Camogie Association are probably in a stronger position now than we were maybe five years ago or even a couple of years ago when these initial memos of understanding were signed. Um, I have always been of the opinion that we need to be one organisation because the clubs are the... It, all the facilities reside in the one clubs and, and your club is, is one of those 
so as in all, most clubs, there's very few right. female only clubs. There are, they okay. obviously exist, but there's very few. Most most football, most ladies football and camogie teams reside in the facilities of the GA clubs. Okay. Um, there are exceptions, but mostly that we'd all be sharing one facilities. The one club initiative um, that people will have heard probably a little bit about, but not a huge amount, is when clubs themselves sign up to be uh, amalgamated so that the LGFA the Camogie Association and the uh, GA they, we all join the one GA club so say for my club in Selbridge if you join Selbridge you're a member of Selbridge and that it doesn't matter if you're a Camogie player a footballer a ladies footballer you join Selbridge GA and you're insured under under the one umbrella and it, it worked out you have access to facilities is equal access to pitches is equal so for example if the senior football team are training they don't get precedence over a senior camogie match which would happen in clubs that aren't signed up to this because the senior footballers might say well we have to train on the pitch we're playing on on Saturday therefore you can take your game and go to the back take a hike yeah and that happens a lot in and like so we would play in places that you know if you're an away game and you're on the second pitch and then you look over and there's a football team training on the first pitch because they're not signed up to one club they don't have equity or equality of treatment Um, you know it's rarer now but it would have been very common common um but it's still when you hear some of the stories around the country it's still probably too common so that's where um you know this is definitely more urgent for for some clubs than others and obviously for counties and just for publicity for the the um the games themselves it's just it doesn't make a huge amount of sense to have three different organizations what wouldn't make sense either though is for camogie and football to be brought into the ga and then become the third and fourth sports of the ga is there a danger of that happening i think that's what the reticence was for sure on the part of the lgfa um you know you have to make sure that if you're going in there you're not just going in and ticking some boxes you know the um executive the the higher echelons of the GA are incredibly male. Um, I'd say for a lot of so, like, incredibly, like, yeah. and, and I'd say for a lot of years, the LGFA and the Camogie Association wouldn't have known what the uh, commitment um, to Camogie and football will be. I think now that commitment, even if it's not you know deep in their souls, it just will be a business decision, and it just will have to be done. But it and also it, maybe should be government-led that the GA should be told, look. You've got to make this happen and it's got to be equal and just sort it out. Yeah, because like, look what happens in the IRFU, the mess that's there because there's people there who don't, haven't wanted to, to do it. Until the new regime came in, Kevin Potts and has been listening. But yeah. but it was, it was only after the Jack Chambers intervention yeah, that like, something actually happened. So there. I think we're probably a bit further on the G. I I think they know the 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 business that's there. I think they know the, the popularity of it. They know the play, the playing numbers are there. The audience is there. The sponsors are there, which is huge. You know, going back to Katie McCabe, like, you know, the, the women's football team have a sponsor. The men's football team don't right now, you know. So, you know. The, the that's not a coincidence either. No. Know, it's And I, I think female sport is, it's, if you're a prospective sponsor, it's the place to be. Like The potential is there. You know, the absolutely. hockey team are getting sponsored on the back of their win, you know, when... Um, but also on the back of reaching a World Cup final. That doesn't mean on the back of their wins, like they were getting sponsored. But the potential there, people are getting to know, you know, we we were just talking there about Katie Taylor and Katie McCabe and not having to talk about, you know, what, you know they're not on the women's... Nah, yeah, but they're not on the women's pages of the sport. They're just on the back pages of yeah. the Sunday newspaper. But that's after, I think, last year, because last year was the big breakthrough, I think, yeah. with, with the soccer team, with um, Ellen Keane, with uh, Kelly Harrington, with Leona Maguire. Rachel Black. With, with, yeah, with Meath footballers who won again yesterday. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I, 
I think now, I think people's thinking has changed. Yeah. And it's a case of, okay, and Katie Liston is then talking about what about, okay, administratively, structurally, what are we looking at here then? Yeah, so that, so that is the problem. It, structurally, you have to go into um, f- fixtures and fixtures are already, Colin Mork is talking about fixtures. You have to look at fixtures as a whole. So you have to make sure that F- Camogie and uh, Ladies Football aren't treated as the third and fourth thing to care about. Um, that, that line as well where she says young girls participants in a mixed underage county development session led by a highly regarded elite hurling coach are instructed to practice with their imaginary slithers meanwhile their male peers are given the actual slithers to practice striking from the hand yeah, and that, was a, that was a recent story that she had that was something that happened recently she said so you know if you go down into grassroots there's still an awful lot of work to be done there's some fabulous examples across the country but then you're obviously going to get stories like that so I think the one club structure is something that can be widened out. You know, there's still some big Dublin clubs that aren't one clubs, which means if you bring your daughter up and your son up, your son is probably going to get treated better than the daughter, um, which is kind of crazy in 2022 to be thinking that you go to a club and sign up your kids and they're not going to be treated equally. Um, The one club means that they will be. So if your club isn't signed up to a one club, have a look and see if they can be and what's the reticence to not doing it. Um, And all of that will eventually help, I think, make the seamless integration amalgamation whatever merger we're ever going to do with the with the three entities um because that is I, I don't know how they're going to do it and the reason why we don't know is because we don't know how the negotiations are going we have this memorandum of understanding but we have not An heard aspirational word thing isn't it yeah so and like yeah and the, the resources it always comes down to resources it always comes down to resources so obviously there's a finite number of pitches so at the moment you and every year we see a, a controversy over you know ladies the Galway thing was, yeah, was like, jarring yeah, but that's yeah. honestly because you, you can end up you know ringing around my sister says this thing we should do it on Twitter like right we rang this place they said no we rang like just call, call them out we rang this place mm. they said no you are at the behest of people being nice to you so then you have to be nice back to them so you have this kind of terrible situation where we know we should be treated equally but we also have to be nice to the men of the GA because they're the ones who let us borrow their pitch you know, or Auto. sometimes pay like we, you know, there are f- training facilities across the country that are being paid for by the Camogie Association and the LGFA because they belong to the GAA. And like they, they, those GAA facilities were not built on the back of, you know, just the men who are playing football and hurling across the country. But a lot of them are like, they're built on taxpayers' money. A lot of them are built yeah. on, yeah, which again. <laughs> it's great. I'm yeah. closing line as well. She's like, if not, future generations are next in the legacy line. They need to understand how now gender inequalities are reflected within the sports industry before they can be shown how to action changes in their lives at any level in the changing rooms volunteering as a club member or a coach or as a player chairperson or committee or when in a paid sports role after all even in our imaginations there are only so many slithers to go around yeah Um, well this is the thing i always say about the one club initiative like if you tell an under 14 year old uh, under 14 boy that they that, that they're more important than the under 14 girl. Mm. How is that not going to bleed into the rest of their lives? Mm. Like if they're literally getting a better pitch, a better training facility, a better coach, um, access to more slithers, more footballs than their sister or their friend of the exact same age and of the exact same competition in the exact same county. How would that not change their thinking about how boys and girls I, I think interact. as well like female sport is so much in its infancy like the progress the potential for progress is off the charts like I think you'll get to a stage where 
the women's World Cup final will be an incredibly good game. Like, and you can already see it. Like the, the standard of Sweden against Ireland was like I could not get over how good they were. And we're talking from a very low base of how long this has been going on, mm. and it's going to get so good. Yeah, like I probably watch. I know for sure in my family home there's as much female sport on the telly as mm. as male. Like my dad watches more women's golf than men's probably my sister watches more soccer women's soccer than men's so we're definitely at a tipping point for some families who have been there for longer I guess Johnny is what I'm saying like you know I'm like well the standard is already good enough for me to watch I enjoy it thoroughly like you know um, but it's good that we don't even really have to have that argument anymore it's just I was reporting on like ladies football when I was starting off as a journalist and um, went to a lot of the Galway games and my sister was heavily involved and just like the St. Brendan's like the ladies scene, the St. Brendan's, it was so big. Like they were getting massive crowds years and years ago, and like it's big. It, it was a real source of pride in a parish. Like, and you know, you get a lot of rural immigration and so on and so forth. And like the St. Brendan's ladies was such a source of pride in our community. Like, mm. and still is. So y- that has to follow through. Then that they have to get treated equally. And whether it comes from bottom up or top down, I think is the big question for the amalgamation now. Um, well, hopefully we'll be top down. Hopefully we'll be top yeah. down yeah. From, from the GAA. Um, this is the Sunday paper review and off the ball. The editor of the journal, Sinead O'Carroll, and the broadcaster and journalist, Johnny Ward, joining me today. Uh, hope you're well, folks out there. Um, the handshake. I think there's been way too much made of this handshake between uh, Brian Cody and Well, you Henry say Stafford. that, but it was one of the first uh, articles that you put to my attention today. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just trying to wake you up. <laughs> um, was there too much made with Judy? I think so, yeah. I, oh, I don't know. I love 800 words being written about, about a handshake. A handshake. I, I, That's I, 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 I always going to be read. It's Dennis Walsh's, Walsh's piece the Sunday Times but there's more interesting stuff about like like Brian Cody's been there since 1998 and they have one on All Ireland since 2015 and uh, in his autobiography Shefflin who's the Galway manager now wrote that there was a massive bond of trust between him and Cody you wonder where that stands now Cody invited him to join his management team and Shefflin turned him down the rejection in Cody's relationships with his players there's always been an absence of closeness or warmth and yet they all craved his approval on some level and Cody controlled their wordless exchange last Sunday. He dictated the temperature. He determined when the long, loud handshake finished. They call it the shakedown. Um, but it, it's, it's <laughs> a fascinating article because he speaks about like, and I didn't really understand this about Brian Cody. Um, it's almost like the implication is that Brian Cody resents Shefflin for leaving his own parish, even though it's clearly stated, well, like Cody is going nowhere. So where is Shefflin actually going to? And he speaks about like some of his former players who'd ha- who've had like, I guess, peripheral coaching roles in the sense... But they're not Henry Schaffler, not the greatest player to ever picked up a hurl. They're not. And he goes, um, a ferocious player, Cody said. This is about um, Henderson, Ger Henderson, who was part of... Why did, why did he bring him into his backroom team? A ferocious player, Cody said. In the dressing room, he was a driver. Defeat doesn't come into his vocabulary. What he said next, though, was interesting. In holding a mirror to Henderson, he was anxious to demonstrate a likeness. He was dedicated to his club at home, which appeals to me, he said. He's loyal, a Johnstown man and a Kilkenny man. I'm a village man, a James Stevens man, and I think, think that's the way it should be. Lots of people go around training other teams, and I can't see how they can do that too easily. And it's like, it's almost like he resents um, the implications that he resents Shefflin for taking the Galway job because Shefflin may win all Ireland with Galway. Mm. We don't know that for certain, but yeah, that's know, the but implication. That's, but that's the fun of a piece like this, yeah. I think. Dennis is going back and he's researched some good quotes. He's taking, he's you know, he's looking, going, if that was a steely stare for whatever reason, this is this is what might have been behind it. 
Um, and it's gone back to, you know, things that Shefflin had said in his uh, book as well. Um, it, it's interesting. Cody hasn't changed, really. He hasn't no. changed no. Uh, from the austere, um, hugely committed uh, character that he was when he was leading Kilkenny to all those All-Irelands. Or go back further from s- some of the autobiographies you hear of what he was like as a teacher when he was teaching these young lads in the school as well, like when they were young boys. And he doesn't seem to have changed from then either. <laughs> so... The, the, the interesting thing is, JD, when is, like, and I don't think, like, Kilkenny probably pound for pound aren't good enough to win all Ireland at the moment, but they haven't regressed at all under Cody. Like, they still I have think a, they have regressed. I you think, think they have? Yeah, I think but they have it's, regressed. But talent-wise, they just don't yeah, have the bears. No, but I, th- I, I do think it's 2015. I, I just think there's, a, the, I think Kilkenny, just my own personal opinion, needs a freshness. Really? It needs a freshness, and it's not having, it doesn't have that at the moment. They don't play for 80 minutes in games because it is well, 80 minutes now. Yeah, last week, I, I've never seen that many mistakes by a Kilkenny team. Kilkenny can't play for a full game and that has been the case for years. And, uh, but they like, don't have the players really, do they? Well, but it, if, you, if you've got a freshness to your approach, it's like Tyrone. Like Tyrone under Mickey Hart. Mickey Hart's the most successful manager in Tyrone's history. Won three All-Irelands. But the moment there was a freshness with Dewar and Fergal Logan, they won the All-Ireland. It was well, obvious that something Something needed happen, to change. Yeah. And, 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 and I just think that maybe Kilkenny needs as a county to see something different. But the, and this is the interesting Because Cody thing. can't go on and forever. They should have the talent in there as well, which well, is like, what think about Eddie Brennan. Shenfrey. Eddie Brennan's mm. done well. He won it with Leash, didn't he? Yeah. Like Henry Shefflin. Before any of this happened with Galway, and we don't know what he's going to do Galway, who won two All-Irelands in a row with Baddy Hale Shamrocks at Club All-Irelands. One of the hardest things to win, so you've plenty of uh, plenty of players out there, former players that that are talented, and but I'm sure plenty of management talent that we don't know about there as well. Yeah, but when when like who decides? Because Cody is not apt to step down, so it's like it's the county board. It's the county board, but like it's been said, I think so, someone said it to me recently. It was like, well, Brian Cody has earned the right to step down when he wants. But what I would say is, Brian Cody was all about Kilkenny. So Brian Cody always wanted what was best for Kilkenny. When Walter Walsh like, got man of the match in his debut in the All-Ireland Final against Galway, came off the pitch, everyone gave him a stand ovation, Cody wouldn't even look at him. Like The player doesn't matter, it's all about Kilkenny. So Cody is all about Kilkenny, but when do they know that it's time for Cody to step down? But it's about Katie Taylor, as you said, when is the time? I mean, how many political careers... Uh end in success how many sporting careers can go out at the top very few yeah. because that the, the addiction as I think Martin Brady would have called Mick O'Dwyer and, and Brian Cody hopeless addicts the addiction and, and to be fair to Brian Cody and it, like he's an incredible manager that it's always been about the Kilkenny more so than the players mm. like totally. it's always been about the, the, the black and amber and um, very few players have been able to like maybe DJ Carey is the only player that he enticed back like every single player like Tommy Walsh ended up on the bench greatest hurlers like very few players um, dictated when they could go yeah and even Henry in his last all Ireland wasn't centrally involved yeah I think it goes back to what we were talking about at at this at the top with Pep is what does Brian Cody deem a failure right now with this current crop because obviously if it was with the crop that were his his best team he would think not winning an All-Ireland yeah. is a failure whereas what does he think now like what does he expect from is he thinking I don't have the players or is it a failure that he doesn't have the players with the tradition and the facilities and the you know the lack of football in Kilkenny like should he always have the players and is it actually a, a failure of his management and his coaching if he feels he doesn't have them 
Or he's so unscrutable. He's so unscrutable. I don't think I. I don't know the answer to that. Mm. Do you I know the answer? No, to that? I'm saying none of us do. So we don't know if he's yeah. failing in his own eyes and he just wants or to get back to the pinnacle, or is he succeeding? Does he think? Well, if someone else had this team now, we'd yeah, be we'd, getting we'd, hammered we'd by Christy Ring Cup. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that shouldn't be lost, well, I think Matty Kenny will enjoy this article, and you know the days maybe of putting stuff up on the walls of dress rooms might be over. But it's like, what happens next? Kenny and Galway will meet again in the Leinster final on the first Saturday in June, which completely. Clues that Dublin are actually leading in Leinster at the moment. The Dublin are a serious force this year. Yeah, I think one of the other things, actually, when you're just talking about fixtures, Colin O'Rourke is talking about the lack of publicity for the championship, and I heard Paul Flynn talk about this a couple of weeks ago as well. Actually, with the with the amount of of sport on at the this, moment, this, this monumental own goal by the GA, we're oh going to talk God. about that. Yeah, like, like I've been saying this for about a year on News Talk. It is. It, it's the it's most. It, it's ridiculous. Like you actually, you Wait, actually can't have wait to, for August. You actually have to really, really care about your county to try and figure out like when they're playing, where they're playing. Is it going to be on telly? Like, are you going to get five minutes like or three minutes on the Sunday game? Like, how are you going to catch up if like, for example, I wasn't able to see Kildare um, against Louth. You right sit down and watch Sunday game. All right, we saw about three scores there. Yeah. Like, okay, there's no, it wasn't streamed anywhere. Like, if you couldn't go, you, you just didn't get to see any of it. Mm. And, and then you're waiting till round two. And then, if you're so that's me who's really into it who who you know is going searching for would have gone to Tullamore if at all possible and the two hurling games clashing at two o'clock last well week that's why like. I couldn't go because we had a Camogie game on so yeah. you know the, if you're actually just someone who likes to go to these things you need to advertise them you need they need to be put up somewhere they you need to actually tell people the championship's starting a bit earlier than usual guys they're being swamped like, by the fact that you've got a Premier League title race you've got a Champions League mm. incredible football and you've got rugby at the moment uh, at the business end it just can't compete yeah the county's blame but it should be instead. able to compete I, I, I just think no I, I just think that the calendar is too squeezed and I mean, you're going to try to mark out a Talton Cup in this environment mm, it's going to be too difficult well like the, the Derry's victory over Tyrone should have been a seismic thing and it didn't feel like it was. Well, nothing, it, yeah, it nothing has felt, felt lost, it. like. But it just feels a bit too like, oh, sure, nothing counts yet, does it? Yeah. It's like people don't know yet. No, actually, it does count. <laughs> no, 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 this people, is it, we're in it. People, like, You see, people's um, mentality is, okay, this is a May to September thing yeah. when the, generally the, the deck is cleared. It's cleared of, of, there's no World Cup this year until the until uh, November, December. The deck is cleared for international football. There's no Premier League. There's no rugby. This is championship time. And when you're, I know the club game is important, but when you're you're, when you're setting aside half the year for something that doesn't have mass appeal, don't be surprised if you're not going to get the return in terms of consumption and excitability about a championship that has been squeezed into too short a period of time in my but view. I think they should have, if they had made the decision to do it, then they have to fully back themselves and go, wait, we can't make this a failure. And there should have been huge marketing. Like I've barely seen anything about any of the games and Munster Hurling included, where there is actually something massive to sell there. Yeah. And so of all the... the, the it's happening mon- too it's quick and fast, you see. Mm-hmm. Like by, the t- by the time like Limerick and Tipperary's happened today, normally you need a bit of time to digest it, to have the conversations, to have the chats, and then the next game's on. Yeah. Like the All-Ireland Finals, like the All-Ireland Final this year in Hurling is the same day as the Open. Like it have Rory McIlroy and Shane Larry going for the Open Championship mm. in St. Andrews, the 150th year of it. The 17th of July, a lot of people are on holidays. There's no build-up, there's no ticket intrigue, there's no interviews, there's no um, atmosphere built in a county. I just think it's self-defeating. I think the timing could be, but it it could have worked if they had put some money behind it and put some thought behind it. Whereas I think they have just kind of ran with it in terms of like we have a 
we have a packed fixture schedule what could work for us and not thought of well it's very GA to not think of the outside world and not think of the other sports that are happening um, but I think if they had if even if they were going to go ahead with the decision which I wouldn't probably be as strong as you saying it's the wrong decision time wise but if they're they had to do more to tell people what's happening to get, get the coverage to get extra Colin Rourke's idea was to put an extra um paid for content on RT on the Monday night so that people could see the games. I'm not sure if that would work, but um, they'd have to do more than just pretend it's a normal season and get people, like, catch them on the hop with big games. And then, yeah, as you said, it's over before people even know it. And they're still interested in the other sports and they haven't switched over to to GA. Be fair to Brian Cody, I was just actually calculating he won 11 All-Irelands in 16 years. So, you know, not bef- bad. You know, so, like, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just some hurler on the ditch here. So, like, you <laughs> know, you, you, you can never... Um, like take that away from Brian Cody and his legacy there, I suppose, because he's been so successful in a way. It's, it's kind of a bit of a paradox in a way that when there's a kind of a challenge in our thinking to him, then it's it's almost difficult to, well, oh, but yeah, there's that on that one side and then on the other side. But I suppose the longer it goes on, it's now seven years. It's it, But the thing is, does Brian Cody wake up and look in the mirror one day and say, yeah, I'm done? And that's the thing because Mickey Hart clearly outlived his usefulness for Tyrone, and it had to come to that. And it's kind of like an embarrassing. And look what thing. he's doing with Laos now. Exactly, like, mm. and um, won a won a title. Yeah, and I think um, the success of smaller counties in football is something we should like celebrate as well. Because like just because you don't win the All Ireland, and Colm O'Rourke speaks about this, he says one of the most enjoyable matches in championship championship so far was between Leitrim and London in McGovern Park in Royslip a few weeks ago. Leitrim won a dinger by four, scoring a goal with the last kick. But it did show that playing teams of the same standard against each other at the right time of year is good for players and spectators. And I think like football as you, football as a spectacle, if you have like Galway and Leitrim today will not be a spectacle. Mm. But if you put the right teams together, and this is, a, I think the championship will change in the next 10 years where it will become more of a league system or whatever. And in the right venues as well. The right venues, Because yeah. it, th- these semi-finals in Leinster shouldn't be in Crow Park. Yeah. Like they shouldn't be in Crow Park. Like, you know, if you brought Kildare and Westmeath somewhere where they'll pack it out have a roaring good game with a good atmosphere it's going to be they're not going to fill out near Crow Park it shouldn't be in Crow Park just they'll sell in a few extra tickets to Dublin fans like it's that's not worth it like let Dublin play in Parnell Park when, when Dublin knocked uh, Galway out the championship in Parnell Park it was Joe Canning came off came on injured and got an, a, a point um, that like I'd never heard a roar like it and the atmosphere in Parnell Park was amazing and if you have like even double that crowd in Crow Park it's nowhere near the no, same No it's nowhere near so you know leave it to the Leinster final get the crowd then but these these matches shouldn't be there so you know we're there are some things I think that they could be doing to make the, the games at the moment, even if they're at the wrong time of the year or not marketed well enough, um, a bit better than they, they do, will be. I do think, th- I, I would just give them a bit of time to get it right because like, even though, what is it, four or five months ago it was COVID. Yeah. Uh, and, and also four or five months ago we almost had this league structure brought in. So... I think it's. I, I do. I think you're right. It's just a case of like if we're having this conversation a year or two's time and nothing's changed, then yeah. Yeah, but I would say then that it mightn't be the timing that's wrong. It's how they've gone about it. Yeah. I think yeah. rather than yeah. are, throwing um, the whole thing out. We are running out of time, but it was good to see Gavin Bazunu referenced in in by Paul Rowan as well, and he just talks about his um, he wants for regular first team games and. The praise he got from the Portsmouth coach Gavin will play in the Premier League. He will be he will be a world class uh, goalkeeper. That's from Danny Cowley. He made forty one appearances, keeping sixteen clean sheets, the third highest total in the division. And 
there's actually the notion that he could go to Bournemouth where Mark Travers is the keeper which would be a uh, man state of affairs like we are so blessed with goalkeepers at the moment it's actually insane are we insane. stacked with goalkeepers it's insane. Like, it's like can we just like play <laughs> three goalkeepers in eight outfielders <laughs> yeah, yeah. grand like or can we freeze one of them and just like in 10 years time we'll take you out <laughs> brilliant yeah um, where's he going to go it's interesting to see where you'll go like where should he be playing now JD like where should he be playing next season well like, at, least in the, at least in the championship at least in the championship and he was in Tala on Mark Travers going to be playing in the Premier League so. yeah he was in Tala on Friday and it's interesting for Cueving Kelleher because Cueving Kelleher I know look he's at a very elite level at the moment at Liverpool and they're chasing quadruple and even if like last night didn't go their way when does he decide oh my god I get some first team football mm. here because Stephen Kenny's not going to play him unless he's playing first team football I don't think he's going to play him because Gavin Mizunu is in the squad like he's just he's so good I mean Kelleher has an awful lot to prove relative to Gavin Mizunu sadly and we just we don't know that we just don't any, know we don't know but like there's no the, the evidence isn't there that he's as good as this kid and he was at the game, the Rovers game in Tala on Friday and like posing for selfies with young kids like and I was privileged like I'm, I'm going to a gig on Wednesday night or Tuesday night and it's a 23 year old who I think is going to be amazing and it's like it's 14 quid into Whelan's and it's like I was at Gavin Bazuna's debut when he was 16 years of age and I was like holy crap like this guy is going to be something else and he was there to pose with kids on Friday. Great stuff. Um, the rugby, as you spoke about at the top, Sinead uh, Munster, uh, Neil Francis, Roman Entomac got a side back even within a minute or two. And even in that passage of play between Toulouse's first and second try, it became clear that Toulouse could do things that Munster could not even understand. That was my f- <laughs> favourite line of the, the rugby uh, commentary from yesterday. Leinster just got the job done, job done, and there's not much to say about it. I know Bernard Jackman has written about it in the uh, Sunday Independent today. He's kind of confident that Leinster can salvage small comfort uh, this is Munster can salvage small comfort and loss and Leinster can control the momentum and have depth to handle to lose in next weekend's semi-final. So Leinster hoping to go to Marseille. Could be against Raj. Could be against Raj. Could be Leinster against Raj. The power of like Pep uh, we were speaking about yeah, earlier the on. The headlines are all about Raj's men <laughs> going through. So you, you wouldn't even know the name of the team by any of the headlines. Um, yeah, the, the Leinster, it's interesting like Leinster won and all of the all of the back pages, all of the photos are all Munster. So it's just the, the interest, like Leinster's aren't interesting enough yet. <laughs> um, and just the because the games have been too easy so far. So it'll be interesting next week to see if there's a, there's a proper game there for them. Well, the human side as well, like Ben Healy, hopefully it'll be the mm. make of him that, you know, he had a tough day yesterday and, 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 and Munster, I suppose there's a little bit of a feeling that Munster might be, coming back a little bit. Yeah, and, and that atmosphere that we were talking about, you know, you, you obviously yesterday was an away game for Leinster, but like, would you have seen the same in the Aviva? I don't know. So yeah, there's there's kind of, there's always kind of, I think, a, a wider country interest uh, in Munster than there is in Leinster probably. Or the Lunsters, is it? The, the Leinster <laughs> yeah, people who support yeah. Munster. Um, anything else, Johnny, in the in the papers that you, you noted, just for our listeners? Um, what else do we have? Um, Don McLean gives five horses to follow. I think All which right. is interesting. We have the obviously the flat and Aidan O'Brien. Just ah, what a week he's had. What a week he's had, and it was just mad then that Luxembourg was kind of. I'm actually at his yard tomorrow morning. There's a, oh. a press morning, so try and get one winner first, will you? Yeah, it'll probably be like some four to nine shot in a maiden or whatever. Okay, I'll, but, I'll, um, I'll, 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 I'll put the nine euro on it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, flyers for the flat. Don gives uh, interesting enough. He's five different uh, trainers as well, including Donnick O'Brien. Um, 
Pizbadil, who's a lovely horse as well. But yeah, Aiden had an amazing week and um, looks to have a stranglehold in the Derby, despite the fact that... There was that an 80 to 1 winner of the Kentucky Derby. Did there you was. See that? Um, and it, I actually thought, and it wasn't in the papers, but I thought the RT reporting it was very interesting because the owner was essentially like American racing's in a really bad way, like because right. of drugs and um, because of. I don't know, like it's just, it's hard to sell, um, if you go to an American race meet on a Wednesday, for example, I, I went to um, Aqueduct on a Wednesday when I was in America a few years ago, because my, you know, my cousins live near the track, and it's an interesting experience, like it's the, the lower class of society, and I use that term loosely, but it is the lower class society who are basically, uh, who was that? And properly, yeah. Yeah, and, and they don't, they basically, they don't work and this is their day out. Like, they go there and it's a really interesting experience and they will slate a jockey coming in if he, he or she gave it a bad ride and they just, but it's 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 a real working class um, slash lower class pursuit now and the owner of the winner is just like, I was basically getting out of this game. I was disenfranchised with it until the trainer convinced me to stay with it and then he has an 80 to 1 winner. This was the same as the Kentucky Derby. Yeah. Rich Strike. So he he's uh, yeah he's what's the name of the owner he's like um, basically the trainer convinced me to stay in the game but right. American racing with the drugs situation JD is bad it's really bad and I know there are a lot of like unverified suggestions about drugs in Irish racing um, it's not in the halfpenny place compared to America where there are legal drugs and then you have you know the Bob Baffert situation and so forth um, it's in real stuck and a lot of the race courses now survive by being casinos every other day. Right, that's pretty depressing. Uh, the, the less depressing is uh, maybe an Irish club at the grass at Croke Park, you were saying? Oh, yeah, speaking of why Munster were in the Aviva, obviously Ed Sheeran, um, and people will probably be wondering why the you, the concert mightn't have clashed with some of the, like say for Porky Cueve, the concert doesn't actually clash with the match, but he still can play because obviously it takes a while for the grass to, well, to recover. People moshing and stuff and rolling uh, around yeah, in the grass, just, grass. They need to, to, they need to uh, do more work, but Croke Park can actually recover quicker because Croke Park now Dennis Walsh has a piece in the Sunday Times page 17 um, that actually Crow Park now have their own farm to uh, grow their own grass so after their concerts uh, they can do it much quicker because they can just replace the, the wow. turf with How the turf that they have um, I don't know if we got that uh, it's like horticulturist uh, turned into a horticulturist in the last few seconds yeah but um, so Crow Park Peter McKenna's stadium manager said well, we felt we, we should do it ourselves so five years ago we bought a farm in Balbriggan and developed it it's taken a while to get the ground right and sink our wells and have it so that it's self-sustaining but we're at the stage now where we grow our own pitches um, so yeah it's not inexpensive he says but it means that we can replace the grass much more quickly and Brexit's mentioned as well is like um, so the reason they did it was because uh, transport delays so that they thought with Brexit they had the farms were outside of Ireland so yeah. they would get the grass pack it up uh, but obviously if they're packing up grass they have to get it it's down and laid quickly and they thought they had to Brexit proof it so now the farm in Balbriggan now grows crop park grasses so after the Ed Sheeran the, the new set of grass comes in from Balbriggan so. if I knew Ed Sheeran's music I'd probably make a song make a pun out of it but I don't <laughs> you're, you're, you're right in, in that set, JD yeah, there is yeah. better stuff out there there's better stuff out there Sinead and Johnny I hope you enjoy the day Sinead O'Carroll Johnny Ward thanks so much for your time thank you for having us The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball